Well, we're starting here in the middle. <laughs> on the, on the, we've already done verses uh, uh, 12 to uh, 23 or so. What we're talking about here is what does circumcision mean for Israel? Circumcision is the sign of the covenant, Genesis 17. But circumcision by itself is not all that it means. That is to say, in Genesis 17, if there is a man who does not circumcise his son, he will be cut off from his people. And as far as I can tell, it not only means that this man dies, but of course this is entailed in that statement, but we don't think in these terms, all who would have descended from him and would have inherited the promises to Abraham are cut out. They're excised from the people of Israel. So that's one of the one of the um, conditions for being an heir of Abraham. To be an heir of Abraham, you must be circumcised in the flesh. But now Deuteronomy ten sixteen shows us that if you're not circumcised in heart, circumcision in the flesh is of no consequence. So back to Romans chapter. Uh, two. Um, um, verse 25. For circumcision is advantageous if you keep the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You are, you are not loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength merely because you have physical circumcision. There is, there is an inner aspect of what circumcision means, and it's this Deuteronomy 10.16 idea, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Uh, the fact that Israel, coming out of Egypt, was circumcised uh, didn't mean that they were not stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked. Um, Roger Clapp and I were talking about this one day, and he said, you'll never know what it means to be stiff-necked unless, until you've plowed with a mule. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll never know, because <laughs> the chances of my plowing with a mule are slim and none. But um, this is the problem. The Israel has remained stiff-necked. Um, Deuteronomy 31, when, I said 31? I think it's, it's, it could be 30. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, we're not going to turn there, but Moses says to the people, you have been rebellious since the day I knew you. How much more than after my death? Uh, How can these be the people who are inheriting the kingdom? And then the Pharisees, uh, who pray to God and call Jesus a blasphemer. Are you with me? Yeah. Uh, if you had known my father, you would have known me. I asked a Sunday school class years ago, did Saul of Tarsus love God with all his heart, soul, and strength? And, and a number of the people said, yes, of course he did. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> then, then Jesus was wrong, I said. He didn't love God. What did he love? He loved the law. Yeah. 
loved the law and loved his righteousness. You follow? So, so the issue here is their circumcision, verses 25 and 26 uh, in, in Romans 2. There is value in circumcision, but only if you live according to the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, transgressor of the law your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If the uncircumcised, if we, let's just put Gentiles in here, if the Gentiles keep the righteous decrees of the law, will not their uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Um, do you know the name Philo? P-H-I-L-O. Philo. Philo was a yeah, Jewish um, Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, lived in Alexandria. Um, <laughs> ten volumes of his works. Uh, and um, uh, oh, why did I go there? I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> um, I don't know. There was a reason for going to Philo. Was it something related to the Septuagint, maybe? No, I don't recall now what it was. The jury will please disregard the preceding statement. Uh, let's move on. Verse 27. The, the, uh, oh, I know what it was now. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Philo acknowledged that there were righteous Gentiles. There were Gentiles who, and, and they were mostly philosophers. For him to be righteous was to be a philosopher. Right? So, so he acknowledged there were righteous Gentiles. Um, and, and here, Paul is saying kind of the same thing. There are Gentiles who do the things that, that even Israel doesn't do. And they don't even have the law of God, but they're practicing what the law of God says. Uh, verse 27, the natural ju- uh, 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 uncircumcision that keeps the law will judge you um, who are a transgressor of the law um, through the letter uh, and circumcision. For not the one who is a Jew outwardly is actually a Jew, nor is the one who is the one outwardly circumcised in flesh, but the one is a Jew who is one secretly in circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. And he's getting pretty close to the kinds of things we've been talking about. Does this make sense to you? Here in verse 28, um, and especially verse 29. So the, the issue for us is here. Paul, let me, let me reiterate. Now, we didn't do this at the beginning of the session this afternoon. Um, Paul is laying the foundation for the application he's going to give in chapters 12 to 15. The application is that they must make their lives living sacrifices by doing three kinds of things. First, in, in 12, 3 to 8, you make your body a living sacrifice by loving each other. I'm sorry, by ministry and spiritual gift, uh, gifting. But if, I'm, if I despise you or I condemn you, how can I minister to you in my spiritual gifting? Second, you make your body a living sacrifice by... Uh, loving without play acting. That's um, uh, 12, 9 to 13, 10. Um, you love 
sincerely. And sacrificially almost, right? Pardon? It's like almost love, love, love sacrificially. Yeah. Well, that's what it is. You're living sacrificially by loving. And every mother knows that love is sacrificial. Is that true? Yes. So fathers don't know that quite as much as mothers do. <laughs> but uh, um, there is sacrifice in a father's love, but the sacrifice that a mother makes is remarkable. Um, don't tell anybody that I'm sipping beer here. It, it is root beer. I want you to know. But it, see, it's A&W root beer. I just want you to know that. So, uh, <laughs> um, the, so, so the point is, how do you make your body a living sacrifice? Romans 12.1. How do I make my body a living sacrifice? And we've had all these theories of sanctification use, the, the crucified life or... Uh, you know all, all these kinds of things. They've taken those two verses out of context and ignored what the rest of the context is doing. So you minister in spiritual gifting. You love without play acting. That includes, by the way, that passage, um, uh, twelve nine to thirteen ten, takes up um, the issue of vengeance and the role of the government in vengeance, uh, which is interesting. Then finally, you make your body a living sacrifice by, in 14.1 to 15.13, by uh, uh, accepting one another, even people that you disagree with because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. You accept them. You, you don't, and, and that word accept, look at 15.7 uh, just quickly here. 15.7 um, your text may say, accept one another, receive one another. What do you have? Receive, receive or accept. Um, it's used in Philemon 17, where Paul says to, it's toward the end of the book of Philemon. It's the 17th chapter. I mean, how long can this, you know, how much more can there be in Philemon after the 17th chapter? But uh, nobody smiled except Jago. He's heard this joke before, so... 17th chapter of Philemon. Come on, guys, catch up. It's only got one chapter, but like the Psalm, verses are chapters. Like Psalm 151, right? That's right. I always think people there. Yeah. Look it up in what, Psalm 151. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there is a Psalm 151. But the, the, the in Philemon, Paul says, I'm going to send Onesimus back, and his statement is there, Rece- receive him as you would me. What kind of acceptance would Paul get in Philemon's household? Honored. Yeah. And this is a runaway slave. And Paul wants them to, to give the slave Onesimus the same welcome they would give Paul? Yes, precisely, because he's a brother in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you with me here? In Psalm 27, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that same word is used. In Psalm 27, David says, Though my mother and father reject me, the Lord will take me up. I think that's the language of the King James. There's a good chance that David's father and mother did reject David at a significant period of his life. You remember when Samuel went to anoint the next king of Israel. They completely ignored him. They ignored him completely. And when he went down to take the food for his brothers at the war, his older brother just he berates him. 
Wait, what are you doing here? You've just come here to see the battle. I know the wickedness of your heart. Uh, and then, subsequently, when David is running from King Saul, he, he goes over, he takes his, his family over to, to Moab to stay with the king of Moab while he is being uh, chased by King Saul. Do you really think that his parents are really excited about him? This is not the career we planned for this boy. That's right. So, so it may well be that his father and mother had rejected him, but the Lord will receive me. So, receive is receiving is the kind of thing that a, that beloved parents would do. Do, do you, does that make sense? It's the kind of thing kind of thing that you would do in welcoming Paul into your home. So it's not just okay. They're going to do what they're going to do, and we'll put up with it. No, you accept them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. You accept them as you would Paul. You accept them as a loving parent would 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 receive his children into his home. Does this make sense to you? So. All of this in chapter 2 that we're talking about is preparing for that. How does this material in 2, whatever, 17 to 29, how does this material prepare for that? Folks, the Jews, it's, it's, it's an oversimplification to say that the weak were Jewish because um, there would have been Gentile proselytes to Judaism who would probably have been more particular about their observances than even native Jews would be. Um, I, I read a book a number of years ago now called The, Philosoph- uh, the um, Psychology of Bible Interpretation. And uh, uh, among many other things the guy said, uh, he said, um, the harder it is for you to join a group, the less likely you are to ever disagree with it. For a Gentile convert to Judaism it's going to be harder for him to reject the standards that he's embraced than it will be for native born Jews in that regard does, does this make sense mm-hmm. what are you thinking brother huh okay so so it will be both Jews and Gentiles who won't eat meat but who am I to despise them they're the treasures of God I'm to receive them as I would Paul. I'm to receive them as I would a beloved family member. Um, and if I'm thinking about the Gentiles, the, the, the strong in Romans, they're the ones, mostly they will be Gentiles, but there will be some Jews like Paul who had learned their freedom and so are practicing their freedom. And for the weak... To condemn the strong is utterly wrong because they are to make their bodies living sacrifices by ministering and spiritual gifting. If I, if I condemn you or despise you, I can't serve you. There's, an, there's no possibility of serving. Uh, if I love you, yes, then I will be able to be sacrificial in my treatment of you. And that will entail then... Even accepting people who differ over over dietary issues. Yes, sir. When when uh, when Paul's writing this and he's talking about the law, being the law of Moses, yeah. six thirteen. Right. Was this before 
Jewish leaders realized they couldn't keep the 613 and they started adding all these sub-laws and sub-laws added on to the 613 or before that? Oh, the the 613, if you ever get a chance to read a list of them, you can look them up on the internet. Uh, A lot of them aren't laws anyway. They're just statements of fact and they've been turned into laws. But still, the, the ones that they realized that they should follow and they couldn't follow and they didn't want to break the laws and they would meet and human beings would figure out how to add yeah. sub-laws on top of that yeah. like keeping the Sabbath. Yeah. You'll break the sub-law but you won't ever break the law. Is that <laughs> after? No, I, that, that's going on at this time. Friends, it is impossible to be a legalist and have a limited set of legals, uh, legalistic standards you always have to define them closer and closer. You can't, you can't, well, is this, is this a subcategory of that? Well, no, because I, this is what I like to do, so it's not. But another guy doesn't like to do it, so he said, well, yeah, it is. And that's when we divide and go our own way. It's the, it's the, it's the nature of the human heart to do that kind of thing. Uh, this is the problem, folks, with legalism. It never is simply the nasty nine or the filthy five. It's it's just, it's it's that plus the interpretation of each one. It's always that way. Well, how close to the line can I get without falling over? The difference between legalism and grace, folks, is right there. Legalism says, how close can I get to sin without doing it? Grace looks the absolute opposite direction. What can I do today to give pleasure to the heart of my Father? It's a fundamentally different perspective. Um, it's, it's not that I'm looking for rules to keep. It's looking, what, what, what would please God the Father today? So this is fundamental to the whole thing. And once you start on a legalistic road, it always leads to more interpretations and more interpretations. It has to. Um, so... Good question. Thank you. Wish I hadn't asked it because I didn't have a great answer for it, but <laughs> at least we got something out. Um, now, I'm going to move on past some of this here. Uh, we've already looked at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Let me just just look at the screen here. Can you read that adequately? Uh, Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. The days will surely come says the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in desert pla- in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised. Even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So Jeremiah even acknowledges this. Um, so th- this is not something that Paul came up with Jeremiah is to be dated in the 6th century B.C. So, uh, and, and really more in the 7th century B.C. But uh, uh, Jeremiah is uh, hundreds, as you see, hundreds of years before Paul. So this is not something unique or new to Paul. This is what the Old Testament even taught. Um, now, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 uh, what then is the advantage of the Jew, or what is the um, advantage of circumcision? Much in every way. For first, 
they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, what then? If some were disobedient, will their do you have disobedient or unbelieving? Unbelieving. That's that's I, I read it wrong. If some are unbelieving, will their unbelief? Uh, and now we've got a problem here because I have uh, will their unbelief annul the faith of God? Do you have faith of God? Is that what you faithfulness? Yeah. The word pistis in Greek can mean either faith or faithfulness. Can mean loyalty, uh, faithfulness, or the or or the concept of faith. Here it probably must be the faithfulness of God. Will their unbelief annul or their lack of faithfulness annul the faithfulness of God? Of course not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Do you understand what that means? Explain what it means. Terry, explain what it means. God is truth. Yeah, God is truth. God is the definition of truth. Any true, any definition of truth that omits God is, to that extent, an error. Um, uh, we talked about this last night, Chago, at, at dinner. The, the law of non-contradiction is inherent in God. That... Um, God cannot say A is both A and non-A at the same time and in the same sense. He cannot say that. Uh, he, he constructed this world to reflect his own character. And what is true in this world is a reflection of his character. Um, so the, the, uh, the essential point here is God is truth. And nothing man does, no failure that man has, can annul the faith, uh, the, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. So he goes on, uh, as it is written, uh, uh, so that you may be justified in your speech, and so that you may win when you are judged. Now, what if our unrighteousness um, the word I have in my mind is command what do you have there what's the verb there in the if clause verse verse 5 brings out. brings out okay it's good uh, the righteousness of God what shall we say there isn't injustice with God who uh, brings wrath is there so if my sin establishes the righteousness of God where, where does he get off judging me I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do I'm, I'm glorifying God I'm showing the character of God by my sin this is a, a bit of a convoluted passage and I can't say I understand it well uh, so we'll, we'll slug through it the best we can um, I'm speaking as a, as a mere man would of course not since how will judge, God judge the world? Here's one of the basic arguments of the Bible I have not fathomed yet. But the nature of God as judge establishes him as the standard of justice. The nature of God as judge establishes him as the standard of, of truth. I, 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 I wouldn't attribute that to any other judge I know about. <laughs> 
Uh, but okay, I can attribute it to God, but I'm not sure exactly how this is all reasoning. This is the way Abraham reasoned with God. Genesis uh, 18, where he, where he's negotiating for the life of Sodom. Do you know why he's doing that? He's a Jew and he likes to negotiate. <laughs> well, he's not a Jew. Because a Jew technically is a descendant of Judah. So he's, he's, he's before all that came in. But it's a funny story anyway. I, I would either say either is he thinking of Lot or is he reestablishing there's no one uh, he's uh, the, the thank you for giving me some options <laughs> that's great uh, I often get well he's, he's trying to negotiate for Lot's life he doesn't even mention Lot what he does mention on more than one occasion is shall not the judge of all the, of all the earth do right it's the justice of God it's the reputation of God that's in Abraham's mind as he's negotiating for the life of Sodom um, so if there are 50 righteous men, will you destroy it for... I'm sure the three visitors saw like through him. Yeah. Because he was trying to be slick willy like he usually was. Who are you talking about? Abraham. Not here. Not, Not here. here. Not here. This is, this is one of the great acts of faith in Abraham's life. This is one of the great ones. Um, yeah, so, so God says, well, no, I won't destroy it for 50 righteous. Well, what if, it, what, what if we're short only five? Will you destroy it? For the lack of five? No, I won't destroy it for the lack of five. And, so he, and he, he argues him down to ten. I think what I meant is that he's trying to have I an mean, direct approach with God as if God would be submitted to something like that. So okay. he, in fact, there's an interesting um, phenomenon there in Genesis 18. Um, after the two angels go down to Sodom, mm-hmm. uh, the te- your text will read, <clears throat> Abraham was standing before the Lord. Uh, but there's an ancient tradition that the rabbis changed the text from that, or they changed it to that. The, the, the text as they received it was the Lord was standing before Abraham. In Hebrew, to stand before someone means to put yourself in place of service. And if, that, if that's true, if that, if that tradition is right, there's some question about whether that is actually a, a sound tradition or not. But if that's right, God is treating Abraham as a friend. And he's giving Abraham the option, ask me what you want and I will give it to you. And what he wants is to protect the character of God in the judgment of Sodom. It's a fundamentally different passage. Uh, yeah. That's a whole new concept to me. Isn't, isn't Lot assumed in there? Yeah, he's assumed in there, but he doesn't mention it. And, and what he does mention is the character of God. Okay, I have to read again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we read that with Lot in mind, but uh, and, and surely Lot was in Abraham's mind and in the Lord's mind as well. But, but what the conversation is about is not about getting Lot protected, because God protected Lot anyway even though there weren't even ten righteous men in the city. Uh, what the, the, the conversation is about, protecting the righteousness of God, the just the justice of God. So it's a, a basically different issue that's going on there. So uh, what then, 
is there any advantage in in Judaism? Where do we where did we stop? Verse five. Can I ask yeah. you a quick question? Yes, sure. As, like in that exchange between God and Abraham, in um, by wanting to protect the character of God, that character of God grows within Abraham because Abraham does not want anyone to perish, which is the character of God, yeah, the process yeah. of God. I mean, when so, I guess my question is, when we are zealous about protecting the character of God. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's a growth for yeah. us. Yeah, and, and in saying protecting character, the what, what I meant and what I'm, I'm trying to say to you is he's pr- protecting the reputation of God. Reputation yeah, of God. and that's, that's more, but he's trying to, and he's arguing because of the char- your character, you can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Then there would be no, no standard of justice anymore. You have to do justice. It's your character to do that. So he's, he's protecting the reputation of God, even before God, which is pretty gutsy. Uh, so there is a verse 5 goes on, there's not injustice with God who brings wrath, is there? I speak like a man. Of course not, since how will God judge the world? Now, if our truth, I'm sorry, if the truth of God multiplies by my lie, to his glory, why am I still considered a sinner? So every sinner is glorifying God by establishing his character as just. And, and that, ought, that ought to stand for something in the world. But, but Paul's going to respond to that. Uh, and not as we are blasphemed and as some say that we are, we are affirming, uh, let's do evil that good may come. Their, their judgment is just. Now, once again, I don't... This is a passage in Romans that I don't really have a good handle on, so whatever questions you have, I probably can't answer beyond it's, what It I, seems like when he's talking about God's judgment, yeah. the ultimate judge, the only true judge, yeah. it's because God knows what we're thinking and he also knows our motive for doing yeah, what we yeah, do and yeah. those are two edges that a human judge doesn't have doesn't ever have and so that makes him the ultimate yeah judge. yeah good that that statement there in verse 8 that you just read let let us do evil that good may come it seems to me that Paul picks that up again in the beginning of chapter 6 where he says, "Shall we say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound?" Yeah, I mean, it, similar it's idea. A similar idea. That yeah, just building on that. Yeah. That, no, I mean, you you don't accomplish good. Mm-hmm. You don't accomplish God's grace. Because, mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to go out and sin. That's sin, right. Sin, so yeah. I get more and more of God's grace. Absolutely. That's Paul saying. No, yeah. that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. So, in these last verses of chapter three or not last verses, but down through verse 18. Paul is going to give a kind of summation of his whole argument since chapter 1. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who understands. They've all together become useless. So this is where we'll turn next week. Uh, it's It's a dark passage, and 
the problem with the darkness of it is that darkness is in me. It's not something that's out there in the world. It's it's what's in me. Uh, it's the truth about me. But it's the necessary conclusion of a book whose whose purpose is to say to the the opposed factions in the Roman churches, you can't go on despising and condemning one another. You've got to stop this. Because when you get down to reality, we are all captured in chapters 1 to 3. With 319, he will, he will uh, sum up the whole. Uh, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world held guilty before God because by the law no flesh shall be justified before him because by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if I can't have law righteousness, is there any other kind of righteousness that I can have? Law righteousness would focus on what kinds of things, what kinds of activities generally. Obedience. Obedience. Thank you. That was exactly the word I wanted. It's looking for, for obedience. Well, if obedience can't give me righteousness, I better hope there's a different kind. And that's what he's going to introduce in 321. But now, a without law righteousness is revealed, being just being testified by the law and the prophets. So it's a without law righteousness. It's a, it's a righteousness that doesn't depend on obedience. Um, so that's where we'll pick it up next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, it's hard to read these passages because we're reading our own biographies here. Um, And yet, you have redeemed us by the power of the work of Christ. You're indwelling us. You've made us your holy temples individually and collectively. And that's astonishing to us. So, Father, um, the more we focus on our own sin, the less we sense your grace and goodness. Would you help us if if this has become burdensome spiritually? I don't sense that, but if it has become burdensome to any one of us in this group today, um, overwhelm us with the grace that's in Jesus so that we may be able to survive. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.